0: Hello and welcome to Bite Sized History, the show where I try to make history fun, fast, and interesting. I'm Nick, your host. Today, we're going to be talking about a term that pops up all the time when you read about history, whether it's in magazines or at school or in textbooks, and that is the term Golden Age. What is a golden age? Uh, how, can we, how can we identify one? And what are some examples of golden ages? Well, that's what I am going to talk about today. When the term golden age is used, it typically refers to a time of um, great innovation, prosperity, peace, and stability. In the context of history and politics, a Golden Age usually refers to a time when the arts flourished, political structures functioned properly, and social stability reigned. The Golden Age of Greece, for example, that's one that comes up all the time when people look for an example of this, uh, which lasted from about 500 to 300 uh, BCE, conforms to the, uh, the aforementioned definition of a Golden Age. It's not just used in history, this phrase, Golden Age. um, It's also often used in reference to a particular art form or medium. For example, the term Golden Age of Comics, for all you uh, comic book fans out there, refers to the period just before, during, or just after World War II, uh, when superheroes like Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman first emerged. Uh, You'll also see the Golden Age of Cinema or the Golden Age of TV, uh, or the golden age of of rock and roll, there's always this kind of connotation of looking backwards through time to like a better time, a better period. Oh, that's you know that's when things were good. So, golden age, in, in a sense of popular culture, uh, often carries this feeling of nostalgia as well. today we're not talking about golden ages in popular history or comic books or anything like that we're talking about golden ages throughout history and the first place i'd like to talk about is spain spain in the 16th century this period saw spain at its height the reconquista which was the christian reconquest of spanish lands from the muslims was complete and the Spanish people were united. You see, up until the late 1400s, i.e. the 15th century, the south of Spain, and especially a region that's often called Andalusia, Andalusia in Spanish or Al-Andalus in Arabic, uh, these were Muslim kingdoms that had been established centuries earlier by warriors coming up from Morocco called the Moors. Um, But by 1492 and the years around there, the Reconquista was complete. The entire Spanish homeland had been reconquered by nobles, mostly from Christian Spanish kingdoms like Castile, León, and Aragon. The Spanish royalty wasted no time in funding expeditions to the New World to search for trade routes um, to the wealthy lands of the East. You see, only a few decades earlier, the great city of Constantinople had fallen to the Turks, and the trade routes to the east were now either closed or heavily taxed. So there was a great incentive for uh, things like gold and spices um, that these royals wanted. There was a great incentive to push out and find a new way to get them, because if you did, oh, the gold would flow. So... By this time, all throughout the 16th century, Spain established widespread colonies in the New World, in places like the Caribbean and Mexico and South America, stuff like that. Treasure ships, treasure galleons, full of gold and silver regularly carried tremendous wealth back to Spain. Their main rivals in this time period were England, France, and the Netherlands, but they still were developing their colonial networks and their fleets and had not yet caught up to the Spanish. The biggest colonial rival for the Spanish in this time period were the Portuguese. And the Portuguese were, in fact, some of the first uh, European explorers to leave Europe and explore places like West Africa, stuff like that. So Spain really had an advantage in this time period Uh, Just like a little note, uh, I said England instead of the United Kingdom or Great Britain because in this time period in the 1500s, it still was the Kingdom of England. So that's just a little bit interesting trivia for you. But yeah, the Siglo de Oro, this is the classic period where Spain was really at its peak uh, with the conquistadors on their ships. Um, Conquistador in Spanish just means conqueror. And it's a... Um, ...word that's used to describe the first Spanish explorers of the New World. Uh, If you want to look at them positively, you could see them as brave explorers. If you want to look at them uh, negatively, or some people would even say realistically... ...you would see them as plunderers, thieves, murderers, uh, gangsters, uh, whatever. They had a very distinctive look, you know, with like the steel breastplate and the rapier... ...and that very distinctive kind of conquistador-style helmet which is called a Morian helmet. So, that's all I wanted to share right now about Spain, because let's get to our two other examples. Okay, now let's fast forward to France in the 18th century. Under the reign of Louis XIV, France was powerful, respected, and influential. French was the international language of diplomacy and learning. And this is in the 1700s. And in fact, this trend would continue into the 1800s. The customs of French nobility, uh, the way they would carry themselves, the way they would eat, the way they would dance and groom themselves, just their entire lifestyle were imitated uh, everywhere in Europe, especially in places like Russia. Louis XIV himself was so prominent during this time that many called him the Sun King. And he was quoted as saying, l'état c'est moi, i.e. I am the state. I am such a radiant, powerful figure that the state literally is me. France during this time period, though, um, unfortunately, had many frequent wars with England, Um, especially in uh, the New World colonies and stuff like that, Uh, things like Queen Anne's War, but especially the uh, Seven Years War, which in the United States was called the French and Indian War. And that had huge consequences, but I'm not going to go too deeply into that. Just the French kings and the French nation through much of the 18th century were powerful and united. Um, This was a time when the French flag uh, was not the the three color, the three bars that we know today. It was actually like a white flag with golden fleur-de-lis on it, like uh, the lilies of France. So I just wanted to clear that up because a lot of times when people think of France, like throughout history, they just identify it with that flag. Uh, But the modern French flag is a uh, post-revolution flag. And now that I said revolution, let's just talk about that briefly because the French Revolution really put an end to this classic royal period of just like French glory, um, which the revolution started in uh, 1789. And it led to a new period for better or for worse in French history. Um, a few years into the revolution, the people of Paris actually cut off the king's head uh, <laughs> and Marie Antoinette's head. Uh, and then you had things like the revolution leading to the rise of Napoleon, uh, which led to the rise of the first empire. And then all that stuff in the 19th century, which I'm not going to get into now. Um, To this day, though, French is still considered by many people to be kind of like a quote, like a prestige language. Um, A lot of our terms for things like philosophy and international diplomacy, uh, words like uh, entente, détente, coup d'etat, like stuff like that, uh, still come from French. Um, So it, it really did have a lasting effect. Now let's talk about the British Empire. See, the British Empire in the 19th century was a big deal. Like, if it could talk, it would be like Ron Burgundy saying, I'm a big deal, people know me. Great Britain, uh, or the British Empire, the United Kingdom, um, those words don't all mean the same thing, so I definitely (laughs) encourage you to kind of Google it. But the British Empire soared to international dominance in the 19th century. Um, Decades of imperial expansion, technological development, and naval supremacy meant that by the late 19th century, the British Empire was the most powerful nation on Earth. Now, about those three things I just said, uh, the British had won a series of colonial wars against the French in the 18th century, and they further capitalized on that expansion in the 19th century, so in the mid-19th century in places like India— Uh, and in the late 19th century in places like Africa. In terms of technological development, uh, Great Britain was the home of the Industrial uh, Revolution. So really where mechanization and machine power got started. So they were able to capitalize that. They were one of the first countries to have a widespread uh, railroad network as well. And in terms of Naval supremacy, uh, for centuries the Royal Navy was the most powerful uh, navy on earth, and this was especially true um, in this period. The empire was so vast uh, that it was often said by poets and writers and journalists, quote, the sun never sets on the British Empire. That meant that because of time zones and the way the earth was spinning and where the sun was, at any point during the 24 hour day, the sun was shining on some part of the empire. That's how vast it was. This period coincided with the long reign of Queen Victoria. And because of this is often called the Victorian period. In fact, to this day, Victoria Day is still celebrated in many Commonwealth countries, uh, places like Canada, because it's this lasting effect. Uh, This person is still celebrated this this monarch, even though they died over a century ago. Some historians have even gone so far as to refer to the 19th century as the British century, because they were just so dominant. Um, And you might be asking yourself, well, if they were such a big deal, if they were so powerful, uh, what eventually led to uh, their decline? And my answer, based on personal speculation, it was the beating, the weathering, the battering they took from two world wars essentially, that just exhausted uh, the empire and it cost so much money that during the decades after the second world war, the 50s, 60s and 70s the British Empire would undergo a long process called decolonization starting with India in 1947 a lot of their imperial dominions started getting independence so by the time you have the 50s 60s and 70s a lot of their places uh, in africa or the caribbean or asia started becoming independent at the height of the british empire for example in africa like if you look at a map of africa in the 1890s the british controlled a huge amount of territory going from alexandria in egypt all the way to cape town in south africa like it's just this huge uh, expanse of territory One of the last places to gain independence uh, from Britain, you know, this is one of the, this is an example that's frequently given as like the final end of the British Empire, is uh, when Hong Kong achieved, uh, well, not independence, but they separated from uh, the British in 1997. See, what had happened was in 1897, the British had signed a 100 year lease, like a 99 year lease on the city. So in 1997, it reverted back to control to China. Uh, Some historians have speculated that the final Imperial War uh, of the British Empire was the Falklands War against Argentina in 1982. So, uh, you know, the British military is not uh, quite as large as it was in the peak of the Empire. So what does this mean for a lasting legacy? Uh, When the British Empire declined and the British kind of focused inwards on themselves uh, rather than persisting in this huge empire in the aftermath of the Second World War, we still see um, their influence everywhere. So, for example, today, the primary most important language of business, politics, science, the Internet is English and that's not just because of the british um it's because the superpower that followed up the british also happened to speak english and that's not something you often see in history where one you know superpower declines and the one that comes after them that kind of assumes their place also happens to speak the same language uh that is the united states and and i think that's maybe one of the reasons why The English language internationally today is so dominant. Um, Linguists will often call this a lingua franca. It's like a common language that's used by people of different languages to communicate with each other, often on a regional level. Another thing that the British uh, contributed to the history of the world that's still huge today is their system of law, British common law, which is still the basis of the legal system in places like Canada, and Australia, and New Zealand, and anywhere where really the the British planted uh, their feet. Finally, it's in the area of sport. So like the worldwide sports of uh, soccer, well in Europe they call it football, uh, rugby, cricket, all of these things, a lot of organized sports are a legacy of the British. Uh, there's tons of other things that still live on as, as legacies of the British Empire, but those are just the kind of three that I wanted to talk about. The English language, the British legal system, and the uh, British love for kind of organized team sports. <music> Those are the three main examples I'm going to give uh, throughout history of golden Ages. but if you do a, a little bit of digging there are so many more that you can you can find. Uh, one example would be the Ottoman Empire in the 15 1600s when they reached the peak of their power and Europe trembled in fear of the Turk. Um, another one would be the there was actually a, um, a candidate for second uh, French Golden Age. Which was about 1880 to write about World War One, 1914, called uh, La Belle Époque, which in French means like the 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 good time, the nice time, or the pretty time, where France in this period was characterized by just boundless enthusiasm for the future, optimism, technological development, artistic achievement, anything like that. The baby boom and post-war kind of comfort and prosperity in the United States, you know that that classic kind of golden age of 1950s America, where everybody was making money, getting jobs, buying houses, having children, Um, you know, that you could uh, you could definitely say that that fits a lot of the characteristics uh, of a golden age. I mean, of course, a lot of them lived in fear of nuclear annihilation, but still, you know, like it was a golden age, so. Anyway, that's all we're going to talk about today. Uh, I just want to thank you so much for listening. And uh, this has been Bite-Sized History, the show where I try to make history fun, fast, and interesting. I was Nick, your host.